podcast may not be suitable for work or for at home with small children. Listen with caution. You move your hand to curl your fingers around the cup. You move via the cup towards your mouth to partake in the tasty hot beverage that helps make you a human in the morning. While taking that first sip, you're instantly able to tell if the temperature is too hot. You move your mouth away from the cup and blow on the hot liquid. But how do you know to do these things? How does this happen almost immediately? The brain, my friends. And today we are starting at the base component of the nervous system and talking about neurons. Yes, that's right. We're talking about the cells that are so amazing and specialized. They can't be bothered with being called cells. They're called neurons. Hi, I'm Crystal, your host on The Brain Grave. Today we are partaking in the segment Neuro Nuggets, where we discuss a neuro subject and you guessed it, we're talking about neurons. So grab a cup of whatever you're drinking, get comfortable and be ready to learn just a little bit about our wonderful brain. So the way I see it, neurons are the bacon in a BLT. You can't have a BLT without bacon, and you certainly can't have a brain without neurons. They are the building blocks of our brain and nervous system, sending and receiving input and commands 24-7. So does every living thing on Earth have neurons? Unfortunately, no, but all animals except for placozoa and sponges do. Fungi and plants have decided to not enter the chat of higher function. All right, so I've praised neurons, but I haven't really described anything about them, so let's do that, shall we? It was originally thought that the number of neurons we were born with were the only ones we were going to have for the rest of our life. Thanks to a scientist named Joseph Altman, he reported evidence of neurogenesis, which is the birth or growth of new neurons, in a region of the brain called the hippocampus. It is thought now that neurogenesis occurs through childhood and possibly early adulthood but I believe there's ongoing studies offering the possibility of adult-generated neurogenesis in learning and memory. It is estimated we have around 100 billion neurons in that amazing brain of ours. When I think of neurons and their overall function, I think of it being a gigantic computer with constant information that is processing. It's responsible for receiving, sending, and transmitting electrochemical signals throughout your entire body. You know what that reminds me of? The internet. Think about what happens behind the scenes when you press enter on Google after typing what you want to search. That is going to send signals to the World Wide Web and within a half a second, give or take, you are going to receive data on that topic you asked for and the ability to search is open 24-7, just like good old neuron dad over here. Don't worry, I won't tell anyone if you're taking a bio course and you compare neurons to the internet, potato, potato, am I right? Anyway, neurons are responsible for transporting and for the uptake of neurotransmitters. Those are the really cool chemicals I'm talking about here. So like I said earlier, neurons are cells and have similarities to other cells in our body by housing a nucleus within a cell body. The nucleus in the cell contains most of the RNA. And in case you're wondering, I immediately think of Jurassic Park and dino DNA whenever I hear genetic information. Whatever. I love me a good dinosaur movie. After that, though, the similarities between other cells in our bodies and neurons kind of stop. Neurons are unique in their structure and function. They are kind of like the badasses of cells. They pretty much bust through the wall like the Kool-Aid man saying, oh yeah, I'm about to catch some chemical messages, y'all. And signal messages they do. But hold up, how do they signal messages? This is where the power of neurons get really interesting. Neurons do not touch each other. Instead, when they are near a synapse... Think of a synapse as a tiny bridge that just happens to contain electrical activity. A synapse is the structure that makes um, communication between neurons possible. So what do these bad boys look like? Oh man, I'm so glad you guys asked. Neurons to me sort of look like a weird tree that belongs in Dr. Seuss's book, The Lorax. 
As I described before, neurons have a cell body. That neuro likes to refer to as soma because we can't have the same names as other cells in the body. That contains a nucleus and surrounding that are something called dendrites. Dendrites extend from the soma like tiny tree branches that receive messages from other neurons. So as I mentioned before, that neuron that gave the other neuron an electrical kind of fist bump and released the neuron transmitter, it would be the dendrite on the receiving end, ready to electrically fist bump them back. So tiny branches covered with synapses just waiting to fist bump other neurons. That's pretty cool. But who are they waiting to electrically fist bump with? Axons. Axons are the ones sending the messages, and it's the longer part of the neuron body. Many of them are covered with a special myelin sheath that helps to accelerate the transmission of the signals along this. The myelin sheath is very important. It's a fatty substance. Uh, it's made of a fatty substance that makes your brain matter white and sort of acts like an insulation for the axon, helping to send those mes messages also over longer distances, which is important for neurons connecting different brain regions. That brief electrical activity that is generated in the axon is called action potential and allows communication to continue to other neurons. So what's this myelin sheath? The myelin helps to insulate the neuron and is made up of fatty substances and proteins, which helps the transmission of electrical impulses to be delivered quickly. When there is breakdown in this sheath, the impulses can be slowed or even disconnected. These can cause neurological diseases that affect several areas of the body and is related to the cause of multiple sclerosis. There are three main types of neurons, sensory, motor, and interneurons. So first let's talk about sensory neurons. Sensory neurons are the cells that respond to the stimuli of sound, touch, or light, and affect the cells of the eyes, skin, ears, mouth, and nose. These are also known as the sensory organs. And they send signals to the brain or spinal cord. Cranial and spinal nerves are responsible for relaying sensory information to and from. The sensory nervous system and perception is, is actually incredibly complex, so I'm simplifying this today, but just know, cranial nerves are incredibly important. Motor neurons. Motor neurons receive signals from the spinal cord or brain to control essentially everything from hormones to muscle contractions. They are in the motor cortex, which is mostly located in the frontal lobe and partially in the parietal lobe, brainstem, and the spinal cord. Motor neurons are also incredibly complex and are primarily divided between upper motor and lower motor neurons. An abnormality in the upper motor neuron tract might reveal muscle paralysis with spasticity. Spasticity is when they're very rigid and unable to move. Increased deep tendon reflexes. So remember when you were a kid and you had that G, that knee jerk re, um, reaction when your pediatrician would, you know, hit you with a hammer? Those jerks or reflexes would be very much noticeable or what we call hyperreflexic. Um, you may have trouble with balance, coordination, movement, hearing, speech, vision, memory, and concentration. An abnormality in the lower motor neuron tract might reveal muscle paralysis with low tone, so reduced muscle strength, reduced deep tendon reflexes, so in this case, reduced jerks or sometimes none at all, and weakness is limited to a specific area. Interneurons take sort of the best of both worlds, connecting neurons to other neurons within the same region of the spinal cord or brain. Interneurons are essential in reflexes. Remember what I just said about those jerks just a moment ago? That's all neurons and reflexes, baby. And, and those reflexes can help us learn more about how your central nervous and peripheral nervous system is working. All right, so remember at the beginning when I mentioned that delicious, delicious cup of your preferred morning beverage? Use motor neurons to bring the cup to your lips and take a sip. 
realizing that it is too hot as the sensory neurons take the message from your mouth and tongue and the motor neurons taking a response to your mouth that, ouch, that is too hot. This is actually considered a reflex and occurs almost immediately. Pretty cool, huh? So damage to the neurons. So what happens when there's damage to the neurons? It all depends on the location, 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 my friends. Let's talk about a few simple examples first. You have spent several years using a keyboard for hours at your job, and now you're at an appointment to see your primary care provider where you tell them that you have this numbness and tingling sensation in your thumb, index, and middle finger. They used to be able to shake it out, but now it seems more persistent and has even woke you up out of sleep. You've also noticed that you get these little shock feelings that travel from your wrist up your arms occasionally. You also now feel weaker when trying to grip things with this hand, as this has been going on for at least three years. It is pretty bothersome, and you're worried. Well, this is an example of a peripheral nerve injury caused by pressure on the nerve. Your sensory neurons are affected, the numbness and tingling sensation, and motor neurons now having weakness. It's a common nerve injury otherwise known as carpal tunnel syndrome. There are several interventions, including non-surgical and surgical, that can be tried to help with this, so don't fret. It doesn't always mean surgery. But what about the more serious injuries? Yes, like I said, depending on location, 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 the damage can indeed be life-threatening. Traumatic brain injuries, stroke, and prolonged seizures are examples of injuries that can cause significant and potentially life-threatening injuries. For example, traumatic brain injuries can cause what is called a diffuse axonal injury, where the axon part of the neuron is specifically damaged in a way that they are shifted or a shearing type of injury inside the skull from an impact. So despite our brains being cushioned with cerebral spinal fluid to help protect it and then covered with the skull, a diffuse axonal injury can occur when an impact happens that's so severe it causes the brain to shift and or rotate inside hitting the skull. This damage specifically occurs to the, the axons. And what did we learn about axons? They are the way we communicate with other neurons. So this is a pretty big deal if all of a sudden the communication is interrupted. Stroke, whether it's hemorrhagic, meaning bleeding, or ischemic, meaning occluded, causes damage by lack of blood flow to the brain, leading to neuron death. Stroke is very localizing. So depending on where the stroke occurs, it depends on what symptoms you would see. Sounds like location, location, location. Am I right? Prolonged seizures, whether focal, meaning one part of the brain, or generalized, the entire brain, can also cause significant neuronal damage. These are just a few examples of damage that could occur to the brain and affect neurons. But what about diseases that are caused by specific damage to certain areas of the neurons? We mentioned multiple sclerosis, which is a later episode we will cover more in depth, but it is an autoimmune demyelinating disease, meaning D as in the myelin sheath is kind of being, you know, stripped away, that causes the sheath to be disrupted in transmission and cause double vision, blindness in one eye, difficulty with coordination and sensation, hearing difficulties, pain, speech, and swallowing difficulties, muscle weakness, as well as many other symptoms. There continues to be ongoing research with treatment, so continued hope for even better treatment is on the horizon. This is an example of a demyelinating disease of the central nervous system. An example of a demyelinating disease of the peripheral nervous system would be Guillain-Barre syndrome. That's a rapid onset of muscle weakness that involves most often the entire body, but it often starts in the hands and feet, which makes sense because this is peripheral. And it spreads throughout the body, making it life-threatening if it makes its way through the breathing muscles. 
such as the diaphragm, because then some people may need assistance with breathing, such as a mechanical, such as mechanical ventilation. The thought is that Guillain-Barre is triggered by an autoimmune response, such as infection, sometimes surgery, though that's not as common, and vaccination, which is reported as rare. It can take weeks to years to recover based on how severe the case was. Other axon-related diseases, these three are progressive and they are, they're pretty sad. Like I said, they're all progressive, so they get worse over time and these, these people die. And a lot of times, you know, their families are the ones that are involved in caring for them. And so there's a, there's a lot to take in um, with, with this patient population. Uh, so the first one is Huntington's disease. Um, and it's an inherited disorder. It causes the neurons. So it's a specific part of the axon to die in various areas. Um, and so part of their voluntary, um, so their intentional movement um, is involved. And as it gets worse, their uncontrolled movements um, start to get worse as well. And we, and we call that uh, chorea. Um, and so they'll have abdom or they'll have abnormal body movements and posture. Their behavior can change significantly, their judgment, cognition. Um, they'll also have trouble with impaired coordination, difficulty feeding and swallowing, slurred speech. Um, and usually this occurs in adulthood between the ages of 30 and 50. But there are um, there's also an onset form of juvenile HT. HD that occurs under the age of 20. Um, you know, unfortunately this, you know, is terminal. They don't, they don't get better. There is no cure and it's caused by a mutation in the gene for a protein called Huntington. And it does affect the neurons and slowly degenerates the axon part. And then Parkinson's disease is also progressive and it impairs motor abilities. And um, so they may have a tremor, they may have rigidity in their limbs, um, they may have difficulty or their abnormal movements and walking. And we know that part of it is the loss of, of dopamine. So the dopaminergic neurons is, is a big part of this and that's affected in the axon part of the neuron. So unfortunately, you know, there is no cure for Parkinson's, but there are treatments, there's medications, um, deep brain stimulation. There are, I think, some treatments that may may help, um, you know, reduce some of the symptoms, um, but, you know, there is currently no cure. And then amyotrophic lateral sclerosis or ALS, or sometimes you may hear it called Lou Gehrig's disease, is also a rare neurological disease that affects neurons with voluntary muscle movement, chewing, walking, talking, it's also progressive. Um, there's no cure. Um, and it's, it's part of the motor neuron diseases. So it's degenerative. And over time, it just, they just kind of are stopping to send messages completely and the muscles will weaken. They'll start to twitch. Um, and they'll just, they'll kind of shrink or atrophy. So it has a pretty poor prognosis in, in terms of how long. Um, they usually die from respiratory failure within three to five years from when the symptoms appear. But there are people um, that live like 10 or more years. So a couple of really sad um, neurodegenerative diseases, but I think it also kind of shows how important the axon part of our neurons are and how if it's not able to communicate to the other neurons, that slowly they will they will die. 
All right. So last but not least, let's talk about like the supporting actors and actresses of the central and peripheral nervous system, the neuroglia. They have several jobs. They are helping with the synaptic part of the neurons. They are helping with transporting nutrients, digesting dead parts of neurons, and cleanup, as well as several kind of other things. Neurons, simply put, cannot function without neuroglia. So let's kind of talk about the several different types. Astrocytes, um, also known as astroglia, are characteristically known and identified by their star shape, and they are located in the brain and spinal cord. They perform many functions. You may see where they are involved in the maintenance of the blood-brain barrier, um, helping with plasma membrane transportation, modulation of synaptic transmission, and nervous system repair. Microglia's main function is the immune cell. It is the smallest of all of the neuroglia, and it's typically oval-shaped, projecting kind of out of the body, is elongated so that it can move along um, the chemical gradient. Microglia mediate immune responses in the central nervous system, so they act as macrophages, and they clear cellular debris, dead neurons, um, through the process of phagocytosis, which is kind of eating the cells, trying to clean up everything. They're like, hey man, this is a mess over here. I gotta clean up all this stuff. So, and they're also activated by inflammation in the central nervous system, which can also be triggered by neurological degenerative diseases like Alzheimer's disease or even by infectious processes and diseases like Creutzfeldt-Jakob disease. They also think that microglia can help delay the progression of diseases in the brain that are caused by infectious particles no, known as prions by, by being able to eliminate the prion-damaged cells. So microglias are pretty important. Oligodendrocytes are a type of neuroglia, which their main function is to support the insulation to the axons. So they're the ones that are creating the myelin sheath for the central nervous part. So their job is to create that, maintain it, make sure that everyone is, everything is going okay with the myelin sheath. And then the swan cells is the counterpart to the oligodendrocytes because it's the main part of keeping the sheath part of the peripheral nervous system. So when they're, you know, maintaining that, there's also non-myelinating Schwann cells that are also helping with um, transporting neurons, or I'm sorry, transporting nutrients, modulation of the synaptic activity, and then also presentation of antigen antigens to T lymphocytes. Schwann cells are also involved with Charcot-Marie tooth disease, Guillain-Barré syndrome, like we talked about earlier, chronic inflammatory demyelinating polyneuropathy, and leprosy because these are all peripheral nervous system diseases. Ependema cells, or ependema, is the neuroepithelial uh, cells. It's the lining of the ventricle system of the brain. So it's one of four types of neuroglial. Um, it's one of them that we're talking about. But it's involved in the production of the cerebral spinal fluid, and it's shown to serve as a reservoir for neuroregeneration. So it lines the CSF-filled ventricles and the spinal canal. And it's also important in the, the regulation of CSF. So it 
is also going to kind of cover areas with microvilli, which absorb CSF. Um, so, you know, if something happens to these cells, that could be, you know, something that happens to the CSF. There's no longer a regulation that's occurring. Um, there are junctions between the CSF and the nervous tissue of the brain and the spinal cord, which is why if we do a lumbar puncture, which is they used to call it a spinal tap, we're able to kind of get information about the entire central nervous system because the CSF has kind of been circulating through everywhere. And then the last uh, of the cells, certainly not the least, they're all, they all have important jobs, are the satellite glial cells. And they cover the surface of neuron cell bodies in the peripheral nerve system. So they're found in sensory, sympathetic, and parasympathetic ganglia. So they have kind of several jobs. Um, they're going to supply nutrients to the neurons, but they also have structural function. They act as protective cushioning cells, and they have kind of a variety of receptors that allow for range of interaction with neuroactive chemicals. So it's also believed that some of these receptors and other ion channels have been implicated in health issues like herpes simplex and chronic pain. So I think as we kind of do more research, we're going to find that satellite glial cells are actually responsible for a lot more than we originally thought. So what kind of abnormalities can we find concerning neuroglia? There really are several. You know, there are cancers concerning, you know, astrocytes. There are glial tumors. There are also papers that are, you know, talking about the uh, connection between mental health disorders and the glial abnormalities. I think, too, as as we explore more about the brain, um, because I know myself, I have learned more um, over the last decade working in neurology, and I continue to learn every day. So I think we will find out more and more about how much these cells, neurons and glial cells really are doing for us. Because I don't think we, I think we've just kind of managed to hit the tip of the iceberg. I don't think we're all there yet. Um, so brain grave people, what is it about the brain that interests you? What is it about the brain that perplexes you? Let me know. Let's talk about it. I'd love to answer questions. You can send me a message at contact at thebraingrave.com and we can definitely answer questions. Until then, the time to be silent is gone. Get loud, my friends. Thanks for listening.